Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital, dedicated to providing you with insights, assurance, and confidence to grow and manage generational wealth. Full Sail Capital is a fiduciary registered investment advisor managing more than $1.5 billion with a focus on integrity, competency, and transparency. Hey, I hope everyone is having an awesome week. It is so good to be with you. I am absolutely thrilled to bring you a new Anchored episode today with Mr. Gary Brooks. Now, Gary has been in the commercial real estate business here in Oklahoma for over 30 years. He's been a broker, a developer, and an owner. Today's conversation is going to focus on a small little building called the First National Center here in downtown Oklahoma City. Back in January of 2017, Gary and his partner, Charlie Nicholas, acquired First National Center, which is a 1.1 million square foot high rise that was built back in 1931. Now, if you have not been in yet, please, please go visit this incredible building that's right here in the heart of Oklahoma City. The First National Hotel and the First Residences were opened in April of this year, and they continue to add other food options and retail options. And so Gary's going to get into all that. As has been the case with most of our anchored episodes, I'm going to again be joined by Scott Cravens, our COO and Full Sail Capital real estate expert, and he's going to add his comments and help guide our conversation. Just to give our discussion some context, right before we recorded this, Gary spent about an hour with a small group of clients telling his story, and then fortunately he agreed to sit down with, with Scott and I uh, here in studio to get his incredible journey on record. So when we reference earlier this morning, that's, that's what we're, we're talking about is, is some of the stories he told earlier. And I, I know you're going to enjoy it. Gary is a, an incredible guy. He's a friend, and he's someone that I don't think people understand quite yet what he and his partner accomplished um, and how impactful that's going to be for this city going forward. So we're going to jump right in, but here's our conversation with Mr. Gary Brooks. Gary, thank you for joining us today, sir. Good morning. Scott, thank you. Yeah, but this is definitely my pleasure today. We're going to try to put some time constraints on this because I think we could go for a while. But Gary, I really appreciate you sitting down doing this. You have been instrumental in this city for many, many years. And for you to take the time out of your day to spend with us, we really appreciate it. But if you don't mind, will you just provide a little bit of background on yourself, history of Oklahoma City? family history, how you got your start into the real estate developing world. I think that'd be really beneficial if you don't mind. Sure. Graduated Punk City High School in 1980, came to Oklahoma Christian in Edmond in 1980. I spent a couple of years there, met my future wife in 1983 on a spring break trip to South Padre Island. That's how all great marriages start. For sure. That's a whole, that's a great God <laughs> story I won't go into. Got an accounting degree from uh, UCO. Okay. She is also a CPA. Well, I'm, I'm not a CPA. She passed the exam. I didn't. So I felt like that was probably <laughs> a good sign for me to go into a different profession. Started selling Range Rovers and Cadillacs from Mr. Moore downtown. Got to work with uh, Mr. Moore and that team for a couple of years. Learned I was much better at sales than I was at doing spreadsheets and taxes. And met Mark Beffert in 1987. Mark said, hey, actually started with Jerry Hawker and then met Mark Beffert a few months later. Okay. And, hooked up. Mark and I are the same age, and he was already kind of a rising star in his late 20s in Oklahoma City real estate. We just connected and started working together at the old Caldwell Banker in Leadership Square in 1987. Formed Beffert Brooks Property Company in the 90s, did some mergers, Grubbin Ellis, Harrison Levy, and Mm -hmm. in 2006, Mark and I were doing some acquisitions. He and Roy Oliver were doing some office building acquisitions. Okay. I had seen a 
demographic chart for births from 1900 and thought, hey, apartments are going to be a really good place to be for a while. So I went into the apartment business, uh, started doing development on my own in 2007, and that's okay. what I've been doing ever since. Well, we sat down today to really talk about one of the biggest, what I think is the biggest improvements in Oklahoma City in probably its history, and that's the First National Building. For people that don't know, you led this charge, and what we'll get into is how many times you tried to say no. I, I don't want that. How many other people said, no, don't touch that. But let's get into that a little bit. When did that come on your radar? Kind of take us back to the beginning of, of when this started of we're going to look at First National and we're going to try to do something with it. Well, the building had been in disrepair. The bank moved out in 1986, ended up going to a receiver and a federal judge, uh, Jim Parrott. Price Edwards had taken it on as a receiver mm -hmm. in 2015 and began looking for somebody to come in and redevelop First National Center. It was never a building on my radar. I never thought about it. I wasn't a history guy, so I didn't have some connection to the building mm -hmm. like a lot of people do. Had heard about it being available. My close friends in the business said, we're not touching it. It's kind of, I call it the black cloud. You know, it's just you don't know what you're going to get into. Mm -hmm. That was the fear. Mm -hmm. I was 53 years old, seven years ago this week when I first, or this last week when I first had the thought of, man, what if we could put a team together? Thought I had enough relationships at the city to at least take a run at it. Sure. And so built a team. They were looking around the country for someone to do it. I knew I wasn't even the most qualified guy in Oklahoma City. Certainly wasn't in the country. Really didn't expect to get picked put a really strong proposal together and a team together, went after it hard. But in the back of my mind, I thought there's no chance we get picked. No one's going to look at my resume and go, he's, he's done high rises. He's done historical projects. He understands how it works. He's, he's got national park service history. He's done tech, never done any of that. So when I got the call one day from Mr. Parrott, I was shocked. I was mm -hmm. with my wife at lunch. I said, you're not going to believe this. I think we're getting picked. <laughs> uh, so that kind of, that was the day. Yeah. December 26, 2015. That was the green light day, and a lot's happened since then, and we'll get into it. Let's go back uh, just a little bit. First National was built originally when? Uh, the bank moved in the building December 16th of 1931. Okay. Uh, Manhattan built it in 11 and a half months, which I still think is one of the most fascinating <laughs> Uh, historical facts about the building. And you, you've you made a comment that they were actually a little behind schedule. Yeah, I have a document <laughs> that apparently they were they were behind schedule, which makes me think, what kind of schedule did uh, the Johnson and the brothers and Mr. Vos give them in 1931? It, it's an incredible feat. I don't know how they did it in, in the middle of the Depression. Think about it. There's, there's soup lines four blocks south. Mm, and they're building a, a high-rise. They're building it. Oil and gas was strong, and my 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 thought is that they just thought we're 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 going to bypass the depression. <laughs> They're, we're doing well. Yeah. We're not even going to participate. Yeah. Two years after they opened, deposits dropped by fifty percent. They had a few really rough years there. Man. Okay, so let's fast forward now. You two thousand fifteen is when you win or get the they they accept your bid. December of fifteen. December of fifteen. So we're turning the turning the page. Sixteen and seventeen. You're in true due diligence at this point? Yeah, we had 365 days of due diligence. We signed the, uh, my partner, Charlie Nicholas, and I signed the contract just January the 11th of 16. We closed January the 11th of 17. Okay. During that process, how many times did you hear, you're crazy, you shouldn't touch this, it won't work? 
Or did that come more after the fact when you started? No, no, no. It came during. (laughs) That's when it happened. People are like, why are you doing this? Things are going well. Just opened three new big apartment projects. Market's great. Oklahoma City's strong. Why would you do this? I don't know. Sometimes you get you get focused. And for about a year there, I, I, I believe that we're supposed to do this. We're going to be able to figure it out. And I, I kind of had blinders on. I heard it, but I wasn't listening to it. Yeah. You made a comment as you started looking at this, and this may have been early 15 or when you're putting the bid package together. You didn't. You weren't a history guy. It wasn't like you had some attachment to First National. But you've made a comment that you realized how special First National was, specifically to Oklahoma City. Was that during this due diligence process, just talking to people, or is that as you started looking at the history of the building? I know you have you know multiple stacks of historical documents. How did that begin to form in your mind of how special that place was? It took a while. The first big meeting I had with my team in January of sixteen as we started due diligence, I just made a comment. I'm not sure it was a all out strategy. It turned out to be, Yeah. I said, we need to assume we have no clue what we're doing. We've got one shot at this building. You don't get do-overs on first national. Mm-hmm. You get it wrong. You'll get it wrong forever. Yeah. 90 years from now, someone will have to fix your mistake. Mm. I said, let's just start with a blank slate. We don't have a clue how to do this. So I put a young lady that worked for me uh, on an assignment. I said, go find me some case studies around the country. I want to see what other people have done. And I'm thinking 15, 20. She brings me over 100 case studies, pictures, details. And I thought, okay, we've got to go touch these buildings. I want to talk to the owners. I want to talk to the developers. I want to talk to the managers. What did you work? What, what, What doesn't work? What would you have done different? And so we sent a team out from New York to Chicago to San Francisco, the Palace, Emma, Hotel Emma, we probably touched 35 of those projects. So 106 case studies you read through, you then go touch, tour, ask questions on about 30? Yeah, probably three dozen. Yeah. I went to Chicago Athletic Club in Chicago twice. I mean, we ended up going and went back there. Cleveland in the dead of winter so I could go see a vault in the basement of a building that was just like mine. Yeah. We really took that on hard to say, yeah. We recognized the significance. We had to get this right. And and I knew, why try to reinvent it? We're not smart enough to know how to do First National. Go talk to the people who've done it. Right. What were a couple things during that process of those 30 side visits that you learned? Surprisingly, I learned how special First National is. <laughs> You'd go to these spectacular buildings in Chicago and Cleveland, the Palace in San Francisco. I mean, it's just an incredible building. But I walked back into my building. I said, my... Oh no, it's it's I, yours. I take it very personal. <laughs> I don't I always I, I try to stop breaking that habit, but it's a city's building. And you come back to First National, you're like, it's not any better than what we've got. Wow. And so I really began and then people started showing up here going, You do understand. This is one of the most magnificent structures of its type in the entire country. We just it's a building. It's down in Oklahoma City. We've been in it hundreds of times. You don't think of it that way. Mm-hmm. It really began to hit me how important this building was from the case studies. Plus, we learned a lot of things we did in the building were because of those case studies. For those people that are listening to the podcast that maybe aren't as familiar with the building or haven't been in it since it's it's reopened, when I came back from, from college, First National Center was one of the very first pieces of real estate that I wanted to get inside of. So I made phone calls and figured out who had it listed and, and then basically begged Jason Little to give me a tour of the property and take me through it. When you'd go into the first banking hall then, the building was essential. I mean, it, there were still some things open, as I recall, but it wasn't much. 
But the great banking hall, when you walked into it then, you felt an appreciation for how magnificent that space would have been when it was first opened and people were coming in there and the scale. And I've been a lot of places in this country and in a lot of great cities and in a lot of amazing buildings. I think the Great Banking Hall in Oklahoma City is one of the most beautiful interior spaces I've ever seen. And the restoration work today, if you haven't been to Tellers and been in the, in the area to see it, is absolutely worth the trip. What is probably worth mentioning just to just context on a simple aspect of the difficulty is if you ever went into it and you went up into the upper floors where the offices were, super low ceilings, narrow corridors, narrow doors, bathrooms were built in between floors. They weren't built on the actual floor. So you had to walk down a half a flight of stairs to go to the bathroom. I mean, these are minuscule challenges as it turns out in the scale, but uh, the building significance in Oklahoma City cannot be understated. So if you're not familiar with it, be sure and look it up on a map. It won't be hard to find. Uh, and if you're in Oklahoma City or you're from Oklahoma City, go down and see it to appreciate what Gary and his team accomplished and what they did. You can't lose fact of a very, very, very important narrative. And that is that 90 years ago, some people got in a room in the middle of a really hard economic time in this country and said, we've got a vision. It's amazing. Yeah, our team did good work. I will never say we didn't. But we only got to do good work because some people took a chance 90 years ago that no one thought they probably should take. And that's why we're here. That's why we got to do it. It's a narrative piece that I, I really drive home to say, sometimes you just step out and do something people think you're crazy. And 90 years later, we're getting to, to benefit from their risk-taking and their vision. And in 90 years from now, people are going to benefit from the risk that your team took. That's and right. Everybody that was a part of this team that put forth the effort, the subs and the contractors. I mean, it's just incredible. We talked a lot about that throughout the process of going, you're doing this for another 90 years. That's how we tried yeah. to pitch it. Yeah. Everything we're doing in the building, you've got to think 90 years down the road. And we can get in here in a little bit more around where Oklahoma City is today compared to even probably when we started or when you started doing this, thinking about this, but where Oklahoma City is today and over the past 10, 15, 20 years, and we can talk about that. But let's get into now, you've done due diligence, case studies, visits, site visits, demolition time. What you thought it was going to be, more than you thought it was going to be? Yeah, it, it took a lot longer. I mean, how, how do you estimate we're going to demo a 1.1 million square foot building? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Midwest Wrecking's probably the best in the country. And even for them, it was a challenge. Mm -hmm. Where do you even begin? How do you do this? How do you how do you break down an entire million square foot office building? Right. We took we took yeah, without the whole just building. blowing it up right yeah. in the middle of the business business district. Too. We took it back to concrete and steel. We took everything out. Yeah, you had to, right? I mean, every system, every pop wire conduit, electrical outlet, everything came out because you knew going in. It this is not only going to be you've got a hotel going in, you've got apartment going in. If you got retail going in, you can't just go in in five years and, and refix something or, or re-demo an area, correct? Yeah. At any given time, you got a 1,000 people in the building. Yeah. You can't say, hey, we got to redo our elevators. It's too late. Yeah, do it now. Yeah, do it now. So you had one shot. You either do it or understand you'll probably never do it. So demolition takes about two years. You hauled off, in your estimation, how many pounds of material? I use $45 million as a number, but I, I can't prove it. Give or take $5 million. Just now, <laughs> you, 
If you know anyone who works anywhere near downtown, especially around my building, they could probably tell you it was a brutal time. I didn't underestimate it. I wasn't even on the same planet of how loud and dusty and complicated it would be for people who work downtown. If I could afford it, I'd just say, if you're within a block of my building, come get free dinner and drinks for a week. Right. <laughs> Not something we can do. That wasn't in the budget. It wasn't in the budget. But I, I appreciate the fact that we literally created a three-year tornado in the middle of downtown Oklahoma City. Yeah. It was very difficult. Yeah. Well, your free dinner and drinks turned into... Now they have this incredible great hall with restaurants, more restaurants coming, retail coming that now they can go enjoy. So I, th I think they'll be okay. Well, any great accomplishment isn't without great pain and great you know trials. And to me, I didn't have to work within that two blocks. But if I had, I can assure you that it's a small price to pay to ensure that that building is what it is today, thanks to you and your team. And the choices were to lose that building or to give up on that building or endure that process. That's an easy decision for the city to make. I'm really, I was going to say humbled. I don't, I don't even have a word for it. I never had a single person say a negative comment to me about that. I had a few friends kind of joke a little bit. Sure. I think there was one person who lives downtown who put some comment on, on Instagram and got blistered by other people <laughs> who work downtown. So that's, that's people awesome. just literally put up with three or four years of really challenging times and never said a word to me other than we can't wait till you're done. Keep going. It was just, Keep doing it's, it. a, it's, a, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Everything gets demoed. Now you're free and clear, right? No problems. Nothing's wrong. Now you're back on schedule. The amount of times you heard, Hey Gary, we got a problem. And not like we got a 10-day problem. Gary, we got like a complete standstill problem. What was kind of the first major one you hit after you get everything demoed out? Or maybe, and maybe during, I'm sure during demolition there's issues, but after everything's demoed out and now, you know, you're, that next step in this vision's coming into reality, what was the first big roadblock you hit? Well, problems became a routine because if, if I'm building a new project, I can control most of it. Sure. Maybe supply issues I got to work through. A subcontractor goes bad. For the most part, if I'm doing a new project, when we got into First National, I mean, people say, well, you did a year of due diligence. Yeah, we couldn't even touch a tenth of what we were going to find. Yeah. That, was the, that was the fear of my friends who were concerned about us doing this was it's what you're going to find once you get into the building. Mm -hmm. well, people who have never done real estate before said, you spent a year of due diligence. You should have had it all figured out. People that knew what you were doing realized how much you can miss even after a year of due diligence that could be compromising. So that's that dichotomy between those two groups of people, right? It's people who haven't done it. They don't really understand. And it's people that have done it and intimately understand how complex that situation and, and project really was. Yeah, a year of due diligence and $3 million. We peeled back the first two layers. Can the building, is it going to stand up and can it hold what we want to do? Right. And are there any problems that we can find that we know we can't solve? Right. That's all you're going to get in a year and $3 million. Ironically, they, a newspaper document said it, it took a year and $3 million to build the building. It took us <laughs> a year and $3 million just, just to, to buy the building. <laughs> just to study it, understand it. Well, there's a few decades of time in between those two, you know, so. So as you start moving into it, and people start peeling out, tearing down walls and ceilings. And I don't remember the first call I got where I just hung up the phone and said, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, there were a lot of those that oh, happened bet. in those earlier days until you kind of learn, all right, 
I've got an incredible team. I've got smart people. We're getting really good at solving problems. <laughs> and that's kind of where the mode you moved into you know, in about 2019 until COVID hit. And then you kind of get your head handed to you again and going, okay, didn't see this coming. Right. We've got 600 guys in the building and six, I need 66,000 sheets of sheetrock and COVID hits. That's a problem. Just minor. And you Gary, know, Gary, you're making me feel better about my home renovate or my home renovation right now. Yeah. Oh, I, I had some friends that say, would call me and just go, look, I was having a bad day. And I know if I call you for five minutes, I'm going to feel great. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm happy to be an encouragement. So glad you're calling. Uh, nothing like getting kicked while you're down. <laughs> 66,000 sheets of sheetrock. And I think yeah. the other interesting just thing is... Just call A&D Supply and tell them to bring <laughs> that over on a truck. Is that what you did? There's a lot of moving parts here. And I don't think I, for one, didn't quite understand that aspect as, as much as I do now. So you have, you have your team you've assembled, of course. You've got your capital that's been committed from different parties of people you've brought to the table here. You've got the historical preservation people that are not making your life extremely easy. Walk us through that a little bit because the historical building aspect, I think, is really, really interesting. And, and you had to jump through some hoops and be extremely creative in order to push some of this through, right? Yeah, what I was talking about is the, is the capital stack yeah. that you had to put together to make this happen. That, and that, I think that is a really interesting part of the complexity. I made one serious mistake early. I assumed that if Gary and Charlie put a team together and took this risk, that everyone would get on the ship with us. Why would Char they Charlie Nicholas, us? your partner. Yeah, out of, yeah. out of Louisville, Texas. I always tell people, I had to go to Louisville, Texas to find somebody who would actually believe that this was possible because no one in town thought it could be done. Fortunately, Charlie bought into the vision. Uh, that's why yeah. we're here. Yeah. Without him, we wouldn't be sitting here. Uh, I'd have lasted till about mid-2018, and I'd have, <laughs> I'd have locked the door and left. But I made a serious mistake, and that was assuming that whether it's a lender or tax credit people or the city, or start going down the list, that why would they not want to align with us and be a part of this story? Well, every one of them's got their own agenda that they have to put ahead of mine. The State Historic Preservation Office, their job is to keep developers from going and screwing up old, wonderful historical buildings. That's their job. I could be frustrated with that and go, why aren't they helping me? Until I woke up one day and went, because they have a job to do, and their job is not my job. They, they don't have to get aligned with my vision. So my perspective was yep. different than theirs and beginning to realize, wait a minute, you know, I've got to think from their perspective. I can't expect them to think from mine. So that was a real eye-opener for me to really begin to put myself in a lender's shoes. Why would, why would a lender not jump on board with this? No, the question is, why would they jump on board? <laughs> That's great advice, That's though. the question. It is great it's advice. Great advice. I think for anybody in real estate, in any business, yep. if you start viewing it from their shoes, you can have some appreciation for where they're coming from. What would a lender have to gain <laughs> right. by taking a chance with me? What's their upside? Just to say, hey, was the lender on the deal? Throw a sign up? For, mo for 106 of them, that wasn't enough. Hundred and six, and I and I I understood that at some point. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what point I quit feeling sorry for myself and going. Wait a minute, you got to think from their perspective. We had a lot of people say no, and then COVID hit, and we had a lot more say no. And every hotel in the country shutting down, and I'm trying to finance <laughs> trying to <laughs> the most expensive hotel in history for Oklahoma City. So we had 600 people in the building working, and my partner fortunately continued to not only bought the vision, he carried me for a few years. Going, we can do this. Yeah, we're gonna make this happen. Yeah. Then Tinker Federal came along and just bought into the vision. 
and said, hey, we're, we're with you. So I'll always be grateful to them for stepping up. Step now, up. I, I usually don't start naming names because I'd have to do it for 10 minutes because sure. there were so many people. Yeah. The capital stack was complicated. Yeah. And there were new market tax credits were critical in the city. And so once I started on that path, I realized, you know, it would take a long time to start naming them. But certainly they were significant in, in buying off in the vision as were a lot of people. Well, there were clearly multiple parties involved that helped make this happen. And I don't think anybody, I know you don't lose sight of that. I don't think anybody that was involved in the project feels less valued. I think they clearly, when we hear you talk about it, I think everybody involved probably took some ownership in it and appreciates now what it's become. At one, might've been 2020, I started just writing down all the names of people that I wanted to someday be able to think. And I hit uh, maybe 200 Wow. And realized I'm not even close. You know, I just, I wanted a list of names. I didn't want 20 years from now to, to forget them, to go, you know, that person was real significant mm-hmm. in selecting the ceiling for the vault. I mean, that's an important piece. Yeah. And I really started just going, there's, there's 2,000 people that are probably touching my building and adding value at some point. And most of them, I never, will never know who they are. That's, that's awesome. The fact that you're even keeping a list. Well, one thing, I mean, that this is, you know, I learned about this group recently. You talked about them a little bit this morning with us. But I think one of the things that I'd like for you to talk about is Evergreen. Because people aren't going to know who that is. And the role they played in the building. I don't take that away from you. I'll let you tell it. But describe, too, how they do what they do. Because I think, again, please, please go see the Great Banking Hall. Walk in, walk up there and look. And when you do and you hear Gary tell this part of it, I think you'll have a lot more appreciation for what was done. My team, they're committed to the building, so they're going to go try to find the best people. You're trying to find the best people you can to do this. In this world of restoring a building like First National, especially the Great Hall, there aren't a handful of people in the country who do this. So it's not like Evergreen. Jeff Green and his company, Evergreen Architectural Arts, were real easy to find. It's, it's a specialty. Sure. So they're out of Brooklyn. My team went and got them, said, hey, they're the best well, we want the best. It's a great haul. You can't, you're not going to go with the B team. I knew nothing about that business. Had no clue. Wouldn't even qualified to, I could look at their website. But so our team, our, our, our construction team, the architectural team hired them. Probably we opened April of 2022. We probably started working on the hall late 2020. Okay. November, December is when we really started. Okay. Now we, we, we need 18 months in here just to restore this room. I hear that Jeff Green's coming to town. I, I meet him at the top of the scaffolding, and I'm seeing holes cut in the ceiling that I hadn't seen the week before. So I'm seeing exposed plaster and introduce myself, and he very quickly said, we've got a problem. What's your solution? Because I'm sure you've got one. You're the best in the world. He said, well, yeah, we've got a solution. We can hand stencil every single design, literally with stencil paper, think third grade, because that's what it was. They just they pull it off. They blue tape it to. This, and they take a pencil and they sit up there and they trace every trace of design. Pull it down. It's modeled. It's labeled. It's mapped. So they know that's B12 in zone six or whatever. They would send that to Brooklyn. They would paint it on a special fabric. I called it wall covering. He said eh, it's a little more <laughs> a little more sophisticated <laughs> than that. But throw some of that wallpaper yeah, up there. Works for me. And they would send it back and remount it. I've, I've never counted the number, but it's probably two or 3,000 times up there. When he told me the process, he I, obviously I couldn't picture it when he's telling me, but he says, we've got a process. 
does that mean it'll be new paint? And like, he said, yeah, well, yeah, it'll be brand new. I said, so will I get the vibrancy mm-hmm. of the ceiling back? Because right now it's pretty dull. Right. He said, oh, it may look better than it did in 1931 when they did it. And I was like, okay, now you got me excited. Yeah. So you keep the effect, you keep the design, you keep the, the grandeur of the, of the space. Because if you haven't been in it, the, the ceiling and the finishes in that great hall are, are unbelievable. They're breathtaking. Yeah, Jeff's team's actually able to take the layers of paint off. They know very close to what it looked like in 1931. These are experts. I mean, these are not people they just brought in off the streets. You know, these people have a master's degrees in this type of in thing. This stuff, right. From really big schools. <laughs> so it was yeah. fun for me to get to learn, to hang around them, video them, ask questions, go through that process. Yeah. But that, that's how you got that ceiling is because, again— Everything works out for good. Somebody found a solution. Yeah. And that's another comment you made this morning. It would have been very easy, probably even logical at times, to trim items out of this project. Trim the budget. Take 10, 20 million off because of how many issues you guys ran into. But the fact that you guys decided we're not going to cut corners because, again, we're thinking about the next 90 years. So we're not going to cut corners now. And I think you're seeing the benefit of it. I would hope you're seeing the benefit of that today as you walk in there. Yeah, I would have. It's why you need good partners. I would have cut it. I would have gotten scared and cut the budget, but Charlie wouldn't let us. Charlie yeah. said, look, we've got to do this. We, yeah. we cannot cut corner. We, we've got to deliver. I think his, his quote to me was, we have to deliver the building to your city, you promised them. Can't. You can't cut it. Mm-hmm. All right. It's incredible. I mean, you, you walk in, you can, you can tell. I think when you hear that story, I hope the people that you know, listen to this and hear that, when you walk in, now and you see the ceiling, it will create in the space, just in general, it'll create such a greater appreciation for what was actually accomplished because you walk in and you think, wow, this is stunning. This is breathtaking. This is beautiful. You know how much work, effort, intellect, heartbreak, sweat, tears, et cetera, it took to actually make it happen. And so nobody can appreciate it the way you and your team can, but that's just a little taste of some of the things we heard this morning mm-hmm. that uh, I think really put the building's context at least in frame. And the other thing, and then I want to move you or, or take you into a direction more focused on the city and what your vision is, because I think you have such a neat perspective there. Walk us through the vault doors and restoration of that area. Because again, if you haven't been down in that area, another area I suggest you go visit. But you had some struggles or some issues there with the vault doors and everything, correct? Well, the vault was a challenge. Sometimes you can either say, I'm, I'm better off not knowing what I don't know. And in that case, I didn't know. I didn't know that how hard it was going to be. So I'm a vision guy and I had this vision and I'm touring projects around the country. I'm like, man, we could do something really cool in this vault. And I start seeing this, you know, restaurant and bar set up. And what never occurred to me was it's a vault. It's three foot of concrete floor, 36 inch concrete floor, 24 inch concrete and steel ceiling. There are no holes in the vault. <laughs> so you want to put 400 people in a room with no holes in a basement? <laughs> with, with loud talking and music? I, you know, in one of my cockier moments, I remember sitting in a room with engineers going, I don't even know if that's possible. I said, well, it wasn't a question. So, you know, if I, I thought you were qualified, but maybe you're not. <laughs> Yeah. Figure it out, guys. I, and then I, you know, I realized how stupid that is. I mean, it's incredibly complicated. I remember going, I mean, I was in the building every day. I walked over 2,000 miles in that building. And I remember going to the vault one day, and they're literally cutting out 36-inch concrete floor because they got to run 
beer taps and drain lines and plumbing, and it's all got to come under the floor. It's a vault. Inches. And, and I'm looking at it, and I remember my mind going, you did this to these poor guys. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're the reason these guys are having to cut through three feet of concrete and literally pull it out of a basement in order to put in all these. Uh, and, and they don't sell a concrete nuts. saw blade for that, by the way. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, you can't get a three-foot. Yeah, it's just. It wasn't just a quick cut. It's yeah. just, it's another one of those times I'm like, gosh, the people will never understand the sacrifice that, that these men and women made to make this building happen. I mean, I wasn't doing it. I'm just having, I'm just watching it. Yeah. And bringing mechanical through two feet of concrete and steel ceiling. I mean, just think about it. It's just incredibly complex. But. They, again, the team were like, okay, he's crazy, but we'll do this. And I had a partner that backed it up. Yeah. And the doors were a, a really challenge because the minute we pulled out all the heat and air, now you got no humidification and steel doors began oxidizing nearly immediately. And so you got to bring teams in who know how to take care of steel vault doors so they don't oxidize and the right oil and seal them up and it's construction, so eight months later, you've torn it up, and you got to bring them back again. I think they came back six times. Just to work on the doors. Just to protect the doors so that when we opened, there's not a bunch of rust on them. That's what I would see when I'd go to other case studies. I'd see these cool vaults, and oftentimes they're rusty, and it's still cool, but yeah. I didn't want any rust on my on the and vault they, doors. They not. They look <laughs> incredible. I, I remember some of your pictures you'd put up or videos you'd put up of the vault doors and those guys working on them. I mean, it was just how intricate that was crazy but again it goes back to the the teams watching this I mean, they know who to call yeah you got 600 people in the building working yeah just an amazing i remember seeing a picture we've all seen the guys building the empire state building you forget about these people who actually built this thing yeah they're gone yeah yeah the poor guys who had to saw my concrete are gone but i'll i'll always remember them sure they played an instrumental part in a piece of the rebuild i guess if you will or <laughs> renovation there's not a word for that that's not a yeah, renovation doesn't do it justice <laughs> no. so well do you, anything else on the building specifically scott that we... no i think I, I think it's time to put the project in context for the city and help people understand that aspect of it because gary's got a really neat perspective on that that he shared this morning so yeah i think it's really interesting gary your approach coming out the end of all this i mean and we could have a three-hour podcast talking about the stories Life events that happened in your life during this process, challenges you face personally, challenges your team face. I mean, we could, and maybe we do that another day. One thing I want to really drive home is the vision and the passion you have for Oklahoma City, what you've seen. You've toured hundreds of cities, towns, multiple large cities, but you keep coming back to this fact that we've got something pretty special here. And I just think I want to get your perspective on that as we wrap up here. Well, my perception of my city at 60 is a lot different than it was at 35. You know, I, I get the luxury of sitting back and I don't worry like I used to. I don't get anxious about any of it. So I, I, my filter of what I see is a lot different than it was 20, 30 years ago. And what I see now is a city that was built on the backs of, you know, I, 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 can, I can start naming names, yeah. which wouldn't be fair. The men and women 30, 40, 50 years ago that started to build this city, the city's different now than it was then, but it's it's different now because of the work they put in. When you're a million four MSA, guess what? You've got different issues. It's more difficult to run the city now than it was 
20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Even though you go, your budget's bigger, you're making more money. Every time you turn around, the city's going to hit record tax revenue. Yeah, and you also got so many people moving in, you can't even get a rental car. You've got you can't know, build houses still the third enough. largest mass land, which is an incredibly difficult thing to manage if you're Craig Freeman and the people that are running the city. But I get the perspective of looking at it and, and going, it is, you got a lot more diversity, which I think is healthy. Absolutely. I think, you know, there are people in this town 30 years ago who probably said, I don't have, a, nobody's listening to me. The city council all looks alike. You know, the people running the city all look alike. <laughs> nobody's listening to me. Mm-hmm. And I think now you've got people I think most people can say, I at least have a voice. That's what makes our healthy city. I may not agree with anything you believe and vice versa. You still need to have a voice. Someone in the city needs to be hearing you and taking your case in front of that horseshoe. Yep. And so I see it as a very healthy growth time. My bent, and I hope I'm right, is that 20 years from now, they're going to write about what's about to happen. I think we're in the early stages People go, ah, we're, Gary, this has got to be some kind of bubble. Well, this isn't a bubble. I'm not saying that you're not going to have these nice little checks. I mean, you guys are in the business of money, so you would have better language than I do. But you're going to have a trajectory of growth and success in this city that is going to be something amazing to watch. I want to be healthy. I want to be able to weigh into it. I think much of it comes because you're seeing young, smart people moving back into this town. And that's the key to me is you start keeping the good young talent and they're calling their friends going, hey, you need to come to Oklahoma City. I that your, never happened in 1990, trust me. Well, I liked your story where you and Befford are sitting in a, almost a, you called it a think tank, but some sort of city study group, if you will. And they made a comment about, yeah, I'm not, not sure. directly at you guys, but. <laughs> it wasn't, but yeah, the comment was all the smart young people have left. Yeah, Beffert looks at me like we don't qualify. Yeah, we're not. <laughs> we're not. We're not smart. But hey, boy, are we glad that you two stuck true. around. It was a true statement. Yeah, most of the really smart get educated yeah. here, or they grow up here and they leave. They leave because they're going to go to bigger cities, more opportunities. Oh uh, well, I mean, look, a lot of people don't know this. I mean, but what you you've danced around it is. I mean, I remember as a kid, I was seven or eight years old, seven years old, and my grandfather was on the city council at that time. Mm. And he was a part of the campaign to bring United Airlines maintenance facility to Oklahoma City. And we lost Indianapolis. And I remember the rally. Let's get United 10,000 jobs. And I always knew I was going to live here. I mean, I I knew I was never going to leave. But I remember the way that that felt, the morale that that sucked out, that you didn't realize just a handful of years later in maps when in 93, when it was first passed, that that would be the beginning and there is, I totally agree with you, there is no bubble here. Uh, this has been slow, methodical, thoughtful, hardworking, blue-collar growth that a lot of people like you have fought and made a city that we can all be proud of and that you can look at, particularly if you have the benefit of being able to look back at the city that I grew up in as a kid or that you were working in early in your career in the 80s, and you can say, man, we have come so far, but we have so far to go. And it's not that we're afraid of that, we're eager to take the next step. And I think you said this this morning. It's like First National was, what else can we do now? What what can we do now? What's next? That's empowering to me because I want to be a part of that. And I think a lot of people do. And that's the difference in mindset for our generation versus what you guys had to work through, which is all the smart people left. The Indianapolis thing was really a blow to the city. But one of my 
bucket list goals was to sit with Mr. Ron Nork and have him tell me the story. And I got to do that about five, six years ago. And Mr. Nork told me the story of what he did, how it happened. And you know, he flew to Indianapolis by himself and came up with the idea for maps and sold that and people got behind it. That changed the city. Mm-hmm. Oh. No maps, there's no First National. No thunder, there's no First National. You think about the things that have to happen for someone like me to go to Charlie and go, hey, I got an idea. Well, you only do that because of all the things that have happened. And it is my hope that people, I want people to walk in First National and sit down and go, okay, I know Brooks, he's not that good. So what could we do? What's possible? What kind of cliff can I jump off of that may kill you, but you're going to, you'll figure it out. And that's what we did. We just, we took a chance and we figured it out. I mean, there's hundreds of things that are going to happen mm-hmm. in this city in the next 10 years that people are going to write about and go, God, that was crazy. Going, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, and again, I, what I hope listeners are taking away from this is if you go into a project with the humility you have to say, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, and you've said that multiple times, you, you put the right team around you and you have a vision and you say, I'm not going to quit. It's, it's not a, it's what we're going to figure it out. Every single thing you see in First National is better than I first saw it. I, yeah. People go to the Great Hall Bar and they're like, oh, Brooks, this is amazing. Yeah, it's a lot better than what I saw. You should have seen the vision I gave. Yeah, The vault is better than sure. anything I ever saw. I mean, I remember walking there one time going, oh, my gosh. During construction, you know, they're putting the blue leather underneath the bar. I'm like, this is, I never saw blue leather, you know, hand-stitched underneath. I never saw it. Never yeah. saw it. So I think people catch that vision and you strive for excellence. I mean, I think that's one of the things I want to push for is Oklahoma City deserves First National. We deserve it. And we deserve better. Mm -hmm. We need to define excellence in this city. And I think it's going to happen. I won't get on a soapbox, but I think for the next 10 to 20 years, people can come from all over the world to Oklahoma City and go, how did you do that? You'll sit in the Great Hall and out-of-towners aren't going to recognize you not going to know you some even locals probably don't because you kind of fly under the radar and again the humility side what are the comments though you as you're sitting there that's got to be fascinating to hear these comments they don't know the the blood sweat and tears that you put into this project what do you hear from these outsiders these visitors locally nationally or what's the most impactful comment you've had what sometimes happens is because they have no clue who i am but they might maybe they're sitting at the bar and a bartender may go yeah that's the guy that kind of had the vision and put the team together so they'll come over and talk to me. I've had a number of times where people have said, I'm from New York. I'm here visiting. I'm here on business from, from Boston. You know, I had a lady said, I live in Italy. She's wow. like, this is incredible. You're from Italy. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's impactful. Oh, yeah. I enjoy two things now. I enjoy watching people come into the room who have a strong connection to the building. Their mom or dad worked there. and They remember coming as a kid. I mean, there are people in this city that have an emotional connection to that building that is deep and strong. And to watch them come in and see their reaction is really fun for me. And the other is people who have never been in before. Yeah. And I don't need to tell them the story. They don't need to know what we went through. That, that's irrelevant. The building tells the story. What I enjoy is, you know, they're like in the middle of downtown Oklahoma City, I never, never saw this coming. And that's a fun thing. Yeah. My wife once said, what does it feel like for you guys to own First National? I go, you can't own this building. I mean, you can't own the Great Hall. Now, I'm speaking for me, not my partner, obviously. But I've never felt like it's something you could own. 
you know, just kind of felt like we're stewarding this thing. We got an opportunity. Probably shouldn't have gotten picked. We did because I think people said we'd rather take a chance with someone that understands the history than the experts who may not commit to it as deep. I'm friends with descendants from you know the Vos family, C.A. Vos and that team, and the Johnsons, Frank and Hugh Johnson. It formed the bank in 1926. It ultimately became, I mean, I'm friends with descendants yeah. from both of those. They live here. That building's important. The history's important to it. So I don't ever want to lose sight of the fact that they took the chance, which is why we get to sit here and enjoy it. Gary, from my perspective, I just want to thank you and tell you how much that I appreciate it as a resident, as somebody who loves Oklahoma City. When I go into that building, I have a tremendous sense of pride. I watched everybody run away from that building for the 15 years I'd come back from college from 2005 until, you know, you restored it and reopened it, uh, which was, it was April of this year, wasn't it? April 12th yeah. is when we opened the doors. And to think about the way it is today versus what I saw when I came back in 2005, it's really cool to sit across from you, hear the story and be able to tell you how much I appreciate it as a resident. And thank you for what you did, you and your team did. It's incredible. Everybody needs to go see it. Well, it's an honor. I appreciate it. We still got a lot of work to do. It'll take us a good year before I think we feel like operations and you got the right people and get all the retail open. I think people expected the day we opened to walk in and go, okay, it needs to be perfect. We're a long way from perfect. We've got good leadership. We've got great young talent in there that are serving. You know, you want to love on those kids and, and yeah. uh, hopefully they have a home for a long time. Gary, thank you so much. Is there anything we left out, anything you want to add as we close? I've got over 2,000 pages of journals, so there's a lot of stuff we left out. <laughs> <laughs> well, when hey, I'll make you a deal. When when you write that book, that's right. We'll, we'll record the audio version right here. That's right. Absolutely. I'm yep. resting right now. Or not. <laughs> and you deservedly so. Absolutely. We need a good writer to show up to yeah. write that book. Well, did you hear that, everybody? We need a writer. Gary, thank you. Thank you. For the time. Consider you a friend. I appreciate it so much. And um, again, thank you to you and your team for everything you did. Yep. Cheers to you guys, Appreciate Gary. the opportunity. Thank you, you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please review and subscribe through your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. 